Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. We're in week two of an Awe of God series, and there's a book that we've been that, that corresponds with this. It's a devotional book, and so today's message will kind of launch us into week two, into the Awe of God book, and we have some copies on the back table that we're selling for $250 a piece. Huh? Right? You're, Spitty's going to pick one up on his way out. Like, it's just... You know, value is value. You get what you invest in. Um, I actually don't know how much they are. They're fifteen dollars. I'm so so close. Um, but I have it on my Kindle. That's where I'm, I'm reading it. You can get it on Amazon. But we have some there for fifteen dollars. And um, the the section of the book this week is called "Revealed as We Are." And I'm not gonna. That's we're gonna go a little bit different direction from that theme this morning. Our message today is gonna be called "Living Near Great Fear." Living near great fear. But um, the the devotionals this week will have things that you'll remember from the message today. So like I said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 5. The book of Acts, um, or the Acts of the Apostles, as it's called by some, is written by the, uh, Luke. And Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus. Luke was a disciple of Paul, and he traveled with Paul. So all of Luke's account is an eyewitness account of eyewitnesses, right? So he did uh, travel and minister with all of these people. He wrote the book of Luke. The book of Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. And so those two books should be almost read as one continuous book. And Luke is a medical doctor. Um, it's not known whether he's a Gentile or whether he is a Hellenist Jew. So he's of Greek origin one way or the other. And he's, his edu he's more educated than any other author of the New Testament, and so his accounts are very thorough, and his writing, it reflects those things, so he has kind of a unique perspective on things, and, um, but at one point, uh, as Acts, you get to the end of Acts, it's just Luke and Paul alone together as Paul's awaiting the, the end of his life, and um, so Luke was there um, as, right here at this transition, right as soon as Jesus was ascending and returning to heaven, and the ministry began. We don't know exactly when Luke's showed up, but he became a very important person um, to our gospel narrative. And so um, a lot happens very quickly in Acts. So we're going to get to chapter five in just a second. But in Acts chapter one, Luke concludes, he picks up with the cross resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And then he adds in that Jesus spent 40 more days after the resurrection, appearing to people, ministering to people. It says providing proof um, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. So Jesus with great intent so that there wasn't like an ability to go, it never happened. He stuck around for 40 more days with his followers and then he ascended into heaven. And so Acts chapter one picks up right there. And at the end of Acts chapter one, they're like, oh wait, we had 12 um, disciples. We need to replace Judas. So Matthias, Matthias is, is chosen to replace Judas. And then Acts chapter two picks up and then uh, Jesus said, go and wait for the spirit to come. 
I'm going to leave. I'm going to go back to heaven, but I'm going to send the Spirit. So they said, he said, stay in Jerusalem. So Acts chapter 2 picks up, says they were all together in one place, waiting, like they just were being really obedient, and they were waiting and praying with expectation of the Holy Spirit to come. Remember, they had no idea what that meant. None. They had never seen it before. They had never experienced it before. They were just like, Jesus says to wait for the Spirit. What's the Spirit? I don't know. Did he tell you? No, he didn't tell me. Like, so what? Well, let's just pray and wait for this thing that we don't know what it is. And so then on day, on 50 days um, after Jesus' resurrection, so he had the 40 days of ministry. So 10 days later is 50 days post and it's called Pentecost because for 50. And so on that 50th day of them waiting and expecting the Spirit to come, the Spirit did just that. And they were, as they were waiting, it says the sound of a mighty rushing wind was among them. And so this thing that they were praying for, they didn't have to wonder if that was it. It was a very um, tangible expression of God's presence. And it said that they saw flames of fire resting on each of them and they were all filled with, and, and they were all filled with the Spirit. And then there happened to be people from every nation of the world in Jerusalem at this time and right as they were filled with the spirit they started preaching in languages that were not their own so that all of these people from all around the world were going how do you know our language and they're preaching the gospel in all of these different languages so they were empowered to do this supernatural thing that immediately made them look crazy and people thought these guys are drunk there's only one explanation for how crazy this is they're drunk so then Paul supernaturally steps up into his, I mean, Peter steps up into his gifting and starts addressing the crowd. And he's like, hey, these people aren't drunk as you suppose. It's 9 a.m. Like we're crazy, but we're not that crazy, right? We're not 9 a.m. in the morning drunk crazy. And so they starts preaching and then he starts calling them to repentance and explaining to them about Jesus. And 3,000 people are added to the followers of Jesus in that one experience, right? Pretty incredible things. And Acts chapter 2 is where we find the instructions for the model of church that we still adhere to today. So I thought it'd be good to just look at that for a second. This is in Acts chapter 2, 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Like, most churches get that first bit pretty good, right? Um, apostles' teaching, check. Fellowship, check. Breaking bread, check. Prayer, check. And then also, everyone was filled with awe. When you gathered with God's people, you were filled with awe. Many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. 44, now all of the believers were together and held all things in common. And this is significant for setting up Acts chapter 5. So they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. So immediately, the we is more important than the me. They started living to serve each other and those in need. And every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. So they gathered in large groups. They gathered in small groups. That's why we do that. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Very simple. That's church. 
that's what we do. That's what we're trying to do. Create room for the power of God to come and, and move through his people so that other people are added to the kingdom of God. So that's Acts chapter two, pretty pivotal experience in the book. Then Acts chapter three, we're introduced to the preaching and healing ministry of, of Peter and John. So they go around and they're healing people. Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. That's in Acts chapter three. Great stuff. So they, we see them being obedient in their ministry, and we've seen more examples of how we can minister. Then, in Acts chapter 4, we're introduced, introduced to the persecution of the church. Peter and John got in trouble uh, from the authorities, and they were arrested because they had preached Jesus. And when they were arrested and brought before the leaders, what did they do? They preached Jesus to the people that arrested them again. It's like they've got one thing that they're going to do. They're going to preach Jesus. Wherever they go, they're preaching Jesus. And so in this particular case, they said, stop preaching Jesus. They said, we can't. And they were like, they let him go. And so it's just a really strange uh, thing. So they left. And... Um, and when they came back and met with their people, um, they said, hey, um, they started, they just said, can we pray? And I think the reality was, this is going to be really hard. Like, we're going to go out, like this thing that Jesus is empowering, calling, equipping us to do, clearly it's going to be hard and people aren't going to like it. And instead of going like, maybe we should rethink this, they're like, we need to pray for boldness because we're gonna have to get after it in the face of all of this opposition. And so they prayed with boldness and God immediately answered their prayer in Acts 4.31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. It's like, what had they just been doing? If that wasn't boldly, what is boldly? Because all of a sudden, they're filled with this, hey God, we need boldness. He's like, I got your boldness, I'm gonna up you, go. Here's everything that you need. So every time they came, they were like, we need, he was like, got you, here you go. Whatever God calls you to, he will equip you to do. He doesn't call you to things that you can do on your own. That's not supernatural. That doesn't depend on the spirit. He's calling us into things that we have to depend on him for. And then when we go and pray, he starts shaking things. But we have to be willing to step into that gap step beyond what we can do. We can do a lot of things without praying for boldness. We can be clever, we can be smart, we can make arguments, we can know apologetics. Doesn't necessarily need the power of his boldness. So we need to make ourselves available to being filled with that, that power. Now, this last part of, of chapter four leads us into our focus in five. So here's what happened next. Uh, remember, they said they were selling all their possessions and giving it to the poor. So here we have, in verse 32 of chapter 4, now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. Thank you, Jesus. And no one claimed that any of his possession was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. Like, if you're holding um, a pair of Astros tickets tonight, like, you could just give those to somebody else who might want to go. Um, nobody? Okay. Um, <laughs> With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace. Isn't it cool that like, like in this culture, you don't exaggerate. You don't just say, oh, it's great. It's awesome. Like Christmas, they didn't do that. So anytime you see a word like great included in the text here, it's drawing attention to that this is a next level thing. There was great grace. Um, 
totally lost my place. With great power, the apostle gave testimony to the resurrection. Oh, and great grace was on all of them, for there was not a needy person among them, because all who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. That's the kingdom of God, friends. The kingdom of God is living with such generosity that nobody among us has any need. That's powerful. So then, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, Letting us know that uh, Joseph was from Cyprus is like saying he summers in the Hamptons and winters in the Bahamas and probably drives a Maserati. Like, people from Cyprus are very wealthy. Like, if you came from there, you had favor, you had privilege, and your resource uh, supply is going to be very, very vast. So Luke thought it was important to tell us that... um, Barnabas, we'll just call him Barney, sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we just read this was one of the ways God was moving in their fellowship. They were so focused on blessing the people around them and taking care of each other. They were excited to give to be a part of this. They couldn't wait to sell. And so it's likely that from Cyprus, Joseph's like a new believer coming into this. What if he was one of the people that happened to be in Jerusalem? I don't know if he was, but he could have been. And he's just seeing all this for the first time. And he's like, hey, I got some stuff I can sell. And, and so he does, and he sells his field, and he gives all of the money. He just comes and lays it at the apostles' feet. He doesn't go, could you send this to here, and this to here, and this to here? He's like, man, I just got all this money from this. Go and bless people. Build the kingdom. Make sure people don't have need. Now, if you're already like, you're ADD, I pushed you too far, and you're already ready for just like, you want your word and you want to go home, maybe this one's for you. Um, and this isn't even the main idea of the sermon, but maybe it's your sermon. But here's, a, here's just a little sermon extra. In a hypercritical and sarcastic world, be a Barnabas. It's very common in Bible times for Jesus to give nicknames. To, to, or they just gave each other nicknames, right? You're Simon, but I'll call you... Peter, you were Paul, I'm going to call you Saul. James and John, they called the sons of thunder. And your name is, is Joseph, but we're going to call you, you Barnabas because you are such an encouragement. Like we're going to call you what you are. There's a significance in your name. And I just think that we live in this world where I think we've got enough critics. I think we've got enough Um, pseudo-political experts. I think we've got enough uh, social media influencers. I think what we don't have enough of is sons and daughters of encouragement. I've yet to meet somebody who said, I have all the encouragement I need. I've never met that person. If that's you, could you raise your hand? I'm good on encouragement. Don't encourage me, please. Whatever you do, do not encourage me. Could you be critical? Could you be sarcastic? Could you make fun of me? I've never heard anybody say that. I've also never met anybody who died from too much encouragement. Like, I don't think that's ever been a thing. What I see is people in this broken world that is polarized and tearing everybody down. I think God wants to empower kind of a movement of Barnabases. Like, 
be a Barnabas, be an encourager in this broken world. So let's hang up complaining, sarcasm, criticism, judgment. We've got enough of that. And release an epidemic of blessing and encouragement. All right? So if that was your word and you want it, you're free to go. Um, and now we're going to get to Acts chapter 5, though, um, what I want us to focus on. So let me read this. We're going to read a little, bit of a, time, a little bit at a time and then talk about it. Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, that's significant that it starts with but. It's in direct contrast to Barnabas. Barnabas was moved by the Spirit, gave this gift, no strings, no reservation, just completely offered it to the Lord. But... Ananias, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and he brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. You notice the difference? Barnabas gave how much? Ananias and Sapphira gave some, but also held some back. So they saw the joy. They got caught up in the, oh man, people are selling stuff. We could sell stuff. We could be a part of that. We could bless people. And the presence of God, it's just a minute ago that the presence of God was shaking buildings, right? And like the mighty rushing, that was just a minute ago, like 3,000. I mean, there's a lot of excitement and energy um, just, just after Pentecost is where we are. And so at first glance, it's like, man, that's kind of the raw end of that bargain. Like they gave some, like there's a lot of people who give nothing like isn't that a little harsh they kept back part of the proceeds which means they also gave part of the proceeds that would be of great benefit to the church um isn't that a good thing but there's this like phrase that kind of clues us in and it's subtle and it says the this with his wife's knowledge shows us that there's an issue with their intent there's an issue with their motive they were content they didn't announce to everybody, we sold this property and we're giving some of it. They presented it in the same way that Barnabas did. But they weren't being honest. There was an intention that they have was to look like everybody else, but in con they weren't being honest about their motives of intention. It looks like they wanted people to think that they were something that they were not. That's intentional hypocrisy. That was their sin. Now, I want to say this. like God does not expect us to be perfect. On this side of heaven, he knows that we're, our humanity will interfere. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to have faults. We're going to have failures. But failing is not the same thing as hypocrisy. It's about the motive of our hearts. And so what we're learning is that the motive of Ananias and Sapphira's heart was not pure. Hypocrisy is about intent and motive, and they were being intentionally deceptive in their behavior. So lesson number one for us today is hypocrisy will never be the way to holiness. It will never be the way to holiness. Hypocrisy in, this, in the Greek language, it, it kind of just means to put on a mask, like the, you know, the Greek tragedies and the Greek actors. And back then the men played the women and you would just go and pretend. You would put on this mask and pretend to be something that you're not. This is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. They were just pretending to be somebody that they were not to the degree that before the church they went and were just putting on a performance so that people would think that there's something 
that they're not. Let's continue on. So hypocrisy will never be the way to holiness. That's lesson number one. And then in verse three, Peter asked them, or he asked Ananias, if I was not there yet, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. Hello. And a great fear came on all who heard. The young men got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. I'm pretty sure in 27 years of preaching that this is maybe the first time I've ever preached on Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Probably not the one I would pick for a good time, right? Yet it is at a critical point of the birth of the church we have this story of people being hypocritical to the degree that it invokes the judgment of God to the point that they die in punishment for their hypocrisy. Now, I didn't write the book. I'm just telling you what's in the book. That's harsh. It's very hard. Peter ID'd the foundational issue, though. He said, you've allowed Satan to fill your heart. They came and just offered the money, and Peter, just like the Holy Spirit must have told him, because he's like, hey, why'd you hold some of the money back? <gasps> you allowed Satan to fill your heart. First Peter says... To be sober-minded and be alert because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. That was true of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's true of you and me. At every step of the way, we have an opportunity to choose who we're influenced by. We can be influenced by the manipulation and the lies of the enemy, or we can be influenced by the truth and power of the Holy Spirit. That's our choice every day. Ananias and Sapphira chose to submit to the lies and the deception of the enemy. Not unlike Adam and Eve um, back in Genesis 3, they were influenced by the lies of Satan. Um, they were influenced by the wrong source. They chose to pretend to be something that they were not. So this isn't a new playbook that the enemy has. He just keeps using it over and over and over again because it keeps working and it keeps taking out good people. And there's an agenda on his part to steal, kill, and destroy every God-natured thing in your life. That's why the power and the presence and the awe of God is such a big deal. Like this is literally, what was their sin? Well, they let Satan influence their heart. And the response was hypocrisy that led to, to judgment. They were influenced by the wrong source. They chose to intentionally pretend to be something they were not. And so I think the, some information for us is doing things that church people do without believing in them is not the goal. Like just doing what other people are doing in the fear of the Lord and not having the same fear of the Lord is, is hypocrisy. It's, it's pretending. The second lesson we have here is pretending is never pleasing to God. It's never. If you're here and you feel pressured to sing because we sing, that's not what we're, we're going after here. 
That doesn't please God, doesn't please us. If, if you see a Christian person doing a particular thing, copying that is not holiness. Holiness happens in the heart. Happiness comes in surrendering to the influence of the Holy Spirit and living in awe of God and who he is and not letting the lies of the enemy creep in and take us off track. So pretending is never pleasing to God. The next thing we see from this passage is that it's not really about the land. It was not about the land. He goes, it was your land at first. He goes, wasn't it your land to begin with? Yes. Did anybody ask you to sell it? No. Did you have to? No. Did you have to give any money? No. And all of that would have not been hypocrisy. And all of that would have not been pretending. Like, this is mine, I'm gonna hold on to it. Great. It wasn't, it's not about the possessions. That's what I want us to see. It could be about anything. In their particular case, it happened to be about the land, but God doesn't need your money. Like, the amount of money that we give is never gonna be going, oh, whoo. God's like, I was running low, <laughs> like cash flow was a problem. Thank God you sold that land and bailed us out. That's never God's position. God has everything he needs. He's got everything. Everything that we get to do is an invitation to be a part of his holiness. It's not because he's lacking in anything. He doesn't need, he could have kept it. We're invited to these kingdom things. But the point was, like you lied to us, that stinks. The bigger thing is you lied to the church. The biggest thing was you lied to God as if it didn't matter. That's what they did. When Adam and Eve fell victim to the enemy's activity, which led them to sin together, right? They ate the fruit that God said, don't eat the fruit. They decided to hide. So when they were influenced by the wrong thing, their reaction was to pretend like God couldn't see them. Like you ever like with a kid, it's like, you can't see me. It's like, totally see you. Why do we do that with God? Why do we pretend like there's things that we do that God doesn't see? Why do we pretend like there's things in our heart that God doesn't know? Why do we act as if God's not God? But when we sin, that's what we're doing. They lied to God as if it didn't matter. It's just like hiding, but they hid their hearts. They were like, you can't see. When God went to the garden and asked Adam and Eve, he's like, where are you? It wasn't because he didn't know. It was an invitation to come out of hiding. It was an invitation to come out of hypocrisy. It was an invitation to come out of pretending. This is a side note. It's impossible to hide from God. Take it to the bank every time. You can't hide from him. We are his. It's his world. From him are all things. Through him are all things He's there. How simpler would our lives be? How much richer would our holiness be if we just lived in the constant reminder that he's here among us? God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus came when he left. He sent the spirit. God is always here. He already knows. And when we hide, we're only hurting 
ourselves. Psalm 139 says we are intimately known by God, our strengths, weaknesses, faults, failures, sins, and even wins. He knows all of that. It says he knows the tens of thousands, well, for some of you, tens of thousands of hairs on your head, or others he knows less than that. Like he knows the exact count. He knows how many are in the sink this morning after you did your hair. Like, why does he know that? It's important for him to know. I don't know. He loves you that much, but that's the degree to which he knows things. He knows every grain of sand on the beach. Why? Because he's God and it matters to him. You matter to him. He already knows us at that level. So it doesn't make sense for any who are in Christ to feel like we need to run from him, to feel like we need to hide from him because Romans says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So even when we make a mistake, we get to drop the hypocrisy, drop the pretending, come out of hiding and come to him. Lesson number three is hiding is a hindrance to living in the awe of God. You can't hide and live in the awe and reverence that God deserves. All right. The next thing in this, this passage, it's, this is the tough part. The judgment of God is a real thing. The judgment of God is a real thing. God is holy, and in his presence, sin cannot exist. Romans, we, we all know this verse, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death is judgment for our sin. And I think that we've swung a pendulum so far to grace that talking about judgment feels wrong. But the only reason that grace makes any sense is because judgment is real. But we've, we, now we're just after this cheap grace that goes, God will forgive me. I'm already saved. So what difference does it make? We've forgotten that judgment is real. What does the story of Ananias and Sapphira remind us of? The judgment of God is, is a real thing. And we might have a tendency to go, that's not fair. You know what's not fair? is that God doesn't kill us for every sin. Our life should be really short because he is just as much just as he is love. And just like when we look at terrorists in the Middle East, we go, that's not right. Sin's the same. It's not right. It's evil. It's a sin directly against God. It can't stand. And according to Romans, it deserves judgment and death. But God, who is rich in mercy, gave his son to die on the cross for our sin so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of judgment. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but every sin deserves to be judged. Make no mistake. Every sin you commit deserves the white, hot wrath judgment of God. And every sin, every lie, every hypocrisy, every pretending deserves for us to be killed on the spot. And God's justice and his righteousness and his holiness. The question we should be asking is, why does he let all of us live? Because he's 
gracious and compassionate and not wanting any to perish, giving us more time to come to repentance. Because sin is real, this is lesson number four, because sin is real, judgment has to be also. It just is. It's part of who God says that he is. All right, um, we're not entitled to forgiveness or grace and mercy. Those mercies that are new every morning, that's not what we deserve. We deserve discipline, but God gives us grace. Why does that not lead us to a deeper awe of him? God, thank you that you showed me grace again today. Move on to to verse seven here, get into the last part. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. So Fyra came in and experienced the exact same feet. Why this harsh judgment? Because sin is harsh and demands a harsh response. Satan is the source of this sin. Peter identified that. So what is also happening here is God is judging the activity of Satan in the church. He's sending a message to the enemy saying, I'm not gonna stand for your deception and your lies anymore. God is sending a message to his power over sin and his power over Satan. God will protect his church at all costs. She could have stood up for what was right, but she didn't. And this isn't a standalone story of God's judgment. It's interesting to write, to read theologians on this, but every time there was some like, not every time per se, but a lot of times that we have record of when there was some like major move of God that ushered in a new season, there was a radical display of God's judgment at the very beginning. And so what what some people would say is when God pours out his spirit in such a powerful way, there's a much higher expectation for holiness. You heard um, John Bevere talk about it last week. He he felt like, if you don't say this, I'm going to kill you. That might have been true. It might not have been true. But we have these Mark Moses' sons in the temple, like they became too familiar with it, too casual with it. And they're like, ah, dead. When they crossed into the promised land and Joshua is leading them, there was a sinful guy named Achan. And it's like, God did not allow his sin to go into this new season. So right at the beginning, he said, I'm serious about this holiness thing. Right here, this is the birth of the church. And we have another example of the judgment of God going, I'm serious about holiness. And I want you to remember that I'm serious about that. Then in verse 11, then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. This is the first time the word church is used in the scriptures. This birthed the church right here. And they lived in awe. They lived with a great fear. Remember that word great is always significant. A great fear came on the whole church 
and all who heard these things. God was protecting the church from the presence and influence of sin. This word great here means like mega, like the biggest, like mega fear and huge awe and wonder. And just remember that chapter five started with the but, right? What was right before that? All of these incredible demonstrations of the power of God and the kingdom of God advancing. But there was this one thing that revealed that sin is serious and we should be serious about it. And then right after that, the church has its best time ever. Explosive growth, all na- like spreading out new churches. Like they, it, there was this one thing in the middle that's like, hey, after that, they lived in the fear and awe of this thing that had happened that they experienced and it purified their purpose. They lived with a sobriety about the severity of God and how important it was to live in fear and awe and wonder of God. So the call, I think, for us is to live in reverence and awe of God in such a way that the influence of the enemy does not prevent us from what God has destined us for. That's our choice every day. Are we going to allow the enemy's influence to distract us from the destiny that God created us for? I hope our answer is no way. I'm gonna make room for the Holy Spirit to shake up my heart and help me pursue the purpose for which God created me for. This experience increased, increased their awe. Last month, Holly and I got to go to um, Colorado and we went and visited the Royal Gorge in uh, Colorado Springs or in Canyon City, right outside of, of Colorado Springs. And um, it's... It's just this huge, like, it's a baby Grand Canyon, kind of, but still incredibly um, vast. And so, in 1929, somebody thought it was a good idea to build a bridge across the, the Royal Gorge. And that bridge is pretty impressive until, like, it's great to look at. And then when you step up on that thing, you kind of go, uh, it's different from up here. There it is. Like, so it's like, from afar, it's like, hey... And there's some pretty incredible things about it. Like it's almost a thousand feet above the Arkansas River, which looks really tiny. Um, It's held together by 4,100 steel cables, 1,200 wooden planks, 1,260 feet long, 18 feet wide, constructed over seven months. They they built it like they dropped two half inch, I don't know how much half inch is, like that, cables from opposite sides. Somebody went down to the bottom, connected them somehow, and they pulled it tight. And that is the engineering wonder that it began the Royal Gorge Bridge. And then they did a second big one of those. And then I guess they added 4,100 more as they, they got going. But you walk over there and it's like, and it, like, right as we were walking up to it, a pickup truck drove across it, which should have made us been like, huh, that thing's pretty sturdy. But my thought was like, If there was a plank on its last leg, that truck just destroyed it and we're going to fall through. I I didn't know I had a fear of heights. I don't know, like 14 years ago, 15 years ago. I was like, I don't think I have a fear of heights. I I was on a Ferris wheel in San Marcos, Texas. And I was like, this is really high up. And I was like, I started to feel a little anxiety. But I think my anxiety was like, who built this thing? (laughs) Like, and... That 15-year-old Carney has my, hand, my life in their hands, you know? Like, I'm not feeling very good about this. And we just got stuck at the very top, you know? And I was like, oh, it's the first time it happened. Now it's happened a lot of other times. And we're walking across this bridge, 
And it's like, these planks are huge, right? Like it's almost a foot per plank, a truck, just surely it's strong enough. And you start walking across and it's like, whoa, that one gave a little bit. That one had some play. I read later they replaced 250 of them every year, right? It's like, at what point do they start replacing them? Like after somebody falls through and almost plummets to their death? Or is it like, what's the, I got all these questions, right? But anyway, we go and it's almost, I don't know, quarter of a mile long, something like that. So it felt like for, forever long. And then like some of them we would get to, and the picture in the middle, on the right side, that's the bottom. Between that, like that's a big crack for your iPhone to be able to capture the bottom of the canyon, you know, through a mediocre camera. And, but it's just like, you started getting this sense of, I don't belong here. I mean, they put all these state flags all along the way to make you feel better. It's like, and it's a suspension bridge. So like when the traffic on the bridge increases, like I didn't have this experience across the Brooklyn Bridge. I was like, hey, if I fall into that water, I can swim. This one is like, that water is nice, but if I fall, it's gonna be splat because that water is like this deep, you know? I'm just gonna drop dead and it's gonna be over. I'm not gonna feel a thing. But when I was up there, like, I started to feel, like, fluttering in my chest. I was like about halfway across, and I was just like, I don't know. I was kind of overcome with awe and wonder, I think. And it just made me realize that I'm only here because of the grace that this bridge provides me. But I know that I could die any second. If anything goes wrong, and I just started to like tremble. It's like, I was like, 29 people have walked across this, 29 million people have walked across this bridge, right? Like I know it's safe. But my attitude was one of like, I don't know. I just kind of started to realize all that had been done to make it possible for me to be able to walk the destiny of this bridge. And I just started feeling like, I think that's the tremble that we're supposed to have in our faith. It's not just like, hey, let's go to church. It's like, I get to go to church. I get to wake up and not be Ananias and Sapphira. I get an opportunity to be led by the Holy Spirit. What I deserve is to be killed because of my sin, but because of Jesus. And here's the, the final thing I want to remind us is that I haven't heard this preached on. I don't know if I've ever heard it preached on. because Churches don't preach about it anymore. But heaven is not just a pass-fail. The scriptures teach of varying degrees of reward in proportion to the obedience that we live our lives. The difference is nobody's gonna be jealous and nobody's gonna be selfish and nobody's gonna lord it over anybody. But our eternity, our role in eternity, our experience in eternity is rewarded based on our obedience if you're saved, you're in. So it's not about your salvation. It's about there's an experience that will be different for those who made a priority of living in the awe and fear of the Lord. What does that look like? I have no idea, right? I wish I did. But it's alluded to. Theologian says the, the parable of the talents is an example of that. There was the one guy who did nothing, never decided to live for Jesus. He didn't make it into heaven. The other three guys heard Jesus, responded to Jesus, 
and at varying degrees were faithful with what he had entrusted to them. That's a picture that something happens to those who give greater priority to the urgency and severity of the awe and wonder of God. And what we started thinking about, this is the last thing I wanna share with you is in Philippians 4. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. If you want faith that's mature, it doesn't come from grace and kindness. It comes from fear and trembling. That's significant, right? Paul could have used any words right there. How do we mature in our faith? Through our faith being tested and tried. How is it tested and tried? Through fear and trembling. That feeling I had on the bridge going like, why do I get to do this? Not letting it become too familiar. Here's the last little takeaways. I'm just gonna list five things and then we're gonna be done. Living in awe means choosing these things. Number one, fear over familiarity. I'm gonna choose to not become too familiar. Jesus is my homeboy. God is my co-pilot. That's pretty casual. Like scriptures do say these are brother, do say these are friend, but not at the expense of almighty sovereignty, right? That just means why does he, why am I his friend? I shouldn't get to be his friend because of who he is. Familiarity destroys our fear. Number two, honesty over hypocrisy. Just be real about where you are, what you're struggling with, what you're dealing with about God. Don't feel the need to put on a mask and pretend. Number three, humility over hiding. Be humble enough to just be caught. Mistakes are okay. They can be forgiven. But intentional manipulation is a different ballgame. Number four, we should be living for God's approval over man's approval. They liked the applause that the church was giving them for looking like they were a part of something and God was not pleased with that. So God's approval over man's approval and five, generosity over selfish gain. Holding it back instead of just, it's yours, God. It's yours, God. It's yours, God. John Wesley said this, and I think it's just incredible. Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw, whether they be clergymen or laymen, such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's the awe of God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.